1. Physiology and Hygiene for Secondary Schools by Francis M. Walters, A.N. Edition 1, November 15, 2005 D.C. Heath and Company Publishers Original Copyright 1909. It is quite possible to give instruction in this subject in such a manner as not only to confer knowledge which is full in itself, but to serve the purpose of a training in accurate observation, and in the methods of reasoning of physical science. Huxley. Preface The aim in the preparation of this treatise on the human body has been, first, to set forth in a teachable manner the actual science of physiology, and second, to present the facts of hygiene largely as applied physiology. The view is held that, right living, consists in the harmonious adjustment of one's habits to the nature and plan of the body, and that the best preparation for such living is a correct understanding of the physical self. It is further held that the emphasizing of physiology augments in no small degree the educative value of the subject, greater opportunity being thus afforded for exercise of the reasoning powers and for drill in the modus operandi of natural forces. In the study of physiology the facts of anatomy had a place, but in an elementary course these should be restricted to such as are necessary for revealing the general structure of the body, although no effort has been spared to bring this work within the comprehension of the pupil. Its success in the classroom will depend largely upon the method of handling the subject by the teacher. It is recommended, therefore, that the relations which the different organs and processes sustain to each other, and to the body as a whole, be given special prominence. The pupil should be impressed with the essential unity of the body and should see in the diversity of its activities the serving of a common purpose. In creating such an impression the introductory paragraphs at the beginning of many of the chapters and the summaries throughout the book as well as the general arrangement of the subject matter, will be found helpful, since the custom largely prevails of teaching physiology in advance of the sciences upon which it rests biology, physics, and chemistry care should be exercised to develop correct ideas of the principles and processes derived from these sciences. Too much latitude has been taken in the past in the use of comparisons and illustrations drawn from everyday life, to teach that the body is a house, machine, or, city, that the nerves carry, messages, that the purpose of oxygen is to, burn up waste, that breathing is to, purify the blood, etc. may give the pupil phrases which he can readily repeat, but teaching of this kind does not give him correct ideas of his body, the method of teaching, however, that uses the pupil's experience as a basis upon which to build has a value not to be overlooked. The fact that such expressions as those quoted above are so easily remembered proves the value of connecting new knowledge with the pupil's experience, but the inadequacy of this experience must be recognized and taken into account. The concepts of the average pupil are entirely too indefinite and limited to supply the necessary foundation for a science such as physiology. Herein lies the great value of experiments and observations. They supplement the pupil's experience, and increase both the number and definiteness of his concepts. No degree of success can be attained if this phase of the study is omitted. The best results in physiology teaching are of course attained where laboratory work is carried on by the pupils, but where this cannot be arranged, class experiments and observations must suffice. The practical work described at the close of most of the chapters is mainly for class purposes. While these serve a necessary part in the development of the subject, it is not essential that all of the experiments and observations be made the intention being to provide for some choice on the part of the teacher. A notebook should be kept by the pupil, to adapt the book to as wide a range of fullness as possible. More subject matter is introduced than is usually included in an elementary course. Such portions, however, 
as are an essential to a proper understanding of the body by the pupil are set in small type, to be used at the discretion of the teacher. The use of books of reference is earnestly recommended. For this purpose the usual high school texts may be employed to good advantage. A few more advanced works should, however, be frequently consulted. For this purpose Martin's Human Body Advanced Course, Rutger's Advanced Lessons in Physiology, Thornton's Human Physiology, Huxley's Lessons in Elementary Physiology, Howell's A Textbook of Physiology, Huff and Sedgwick's Hygiene and Sanitation, and Pyle's Personal Hygiene will be found serviceable. In the preparation of this work valuable assistance has been rendered by Drive C. N. McAllister, Department of Psychology, and by Professor B. M. Stigall, Department of Biology, along the lines of their respective specialties, and in a more general way by President W. J. Hawkins and others of the Warrensburg, Missouri, State Normal School, expert advice from Professor S. D. Maggers, instructor in physiology and bacteriology, State Normal School, Ypsilanti, Michigan, has been especially helpful, and many practical suggestions from the high school teachers of physiology of Kansas City, Missouri, Professor C. H. Nolan, Central High School, Dr. John W. Scott, Westport High School, and Professor A. E. Sherling, Manual Training High School, all of whom read both manuscript and proofs, have been incorporated. Considerable material for the practical work, including the Respiration Experiment page 101 and the Reaction Time Experiment page 323, were contributed by Dr. Scott. Professor Nolan's suggestions on subject matter and methods of presentation deserve special mention. To these and many others the author makes grateful acknowledgement. FMW Missouri State Normal School, 2nd District, May 1, 1909. Contents Preface Contents Part I, The Vital Processes Chapter I Introduction Chapter II General View of the Body Chapter III The Body Organization Chapter IB The Blood Chapter V The Circulation Chapter VI The Lymph and Its Movement Through the Body Chapter VII Respiration Chapter VII Passage of Oxygen Through the body chapter IX foods and the theory of digestion chapter X organs and processes of digestion chapters I absorption, storage, and assimilation chapter XII energy supply of the body chapter XII glands and the work of excretion part II motion, coordination, and sensation chapter XIV the skeleton chapter XV the muscular system chapter XVI the skin chapter XVII structure of the nervous system chapter XVII physiology of the nervous system chapter XIX hygiene of the nervous system chapter XX production of sensations chapter XXI the larynx and the ear chapter XXII the eye chapter XXII the general problem of keeping well appendix index physiology and hygiene part I the Vital Processes Chapter I Introduction to Derive Strength Equal to the Daily Task, to Experience the Advantages of Health and Avoid the Pain, Inconvenience, and Danger of Disease, to Live Out Contentedly and Fully the Natural Span of Life, these are problems that concern all people. They are, however, but different phases of one great problem the problem of properly managing or caring for the body. To supply knowledge necessary to the solution of this problem is the chief reason why the body is studied in our public schools. Divisions of the subject. The body is studied from three standpoints, structure, use of parts, and care or management. This causes the main subject to be considered under three heads, known as anatomy, physiology, and hygiene. Anatomy treats of the construction of the body the parts which compose it, what they are like, and where located. Its main divisions are known as gross anatomy and histology. Gross anatomy treats of the larger structures of the body, 
while histology treats of the minute structures of which these are composed parts too small to be seen with the naked eye and which have to be studied with the aid of the microscope. Physiology treats of the function, or use, of the different parts of the body the work which the parts do and how they do it and of their relations to one another and to the body as a whole. Hygiene treats of the proper care or management of the body. In a somewhat narrower sense it treats of the laws of health. Hygiene is said to be personal, when applied by the individual to his own body, domestic, when applied to a small group of people, as the family, and public, or general, when applied to the community as a whole or to the race. The general aim of hygiene. There are many so-called laws of health, and for these laws it is essential in the management of the body to find a common basis. This basic law, suggested by the nature of the body and conditions that affect its well-being, may be termed the law of harmony. The mode of living must harmonize with the plan of the body. To live properly one must supply the conditions which his body, on account of its nature and plan, requires. On the other hand, he must avoid those things and conditions which are injurious, i.e. out of harmony with the body plan. To secure these results, it is necessary to determine what is and what is not in harmony with the plan of the body, and to find the means of applying this knowledge to the everyday problems of living such as the general aim of hygiene. Stated in other words, hygiene has for its general aim the bringing about of an essential harmony between the body and the things and conditions that affect it. One relation of anatomy and physiology to the study of hygiene. If the chief object in studying the body is that of learning how to manage or care for it, and hygiene supplies this information, why must we also study anatomy and physiology? The answer to this question has already been in part suggested. In order to determine what things and conditions are in harmony with the plan of the body, we must know what that plan is. This knowledge is obtained through a study of anatomy and physiology. The knowledge gained through these subjects also renders the study of hygiene more interesting and valuable. One is enabled to see why and how obedience to hygienic laws benefits, and disobedience to them injures, the body. This causes the teachings of hygiene to be taken more seriously and renders them more practical. In short, Anatomy and physiology supply a necessary basis for the study of hygiene. Advantages of properly managing the body. One result following the mismanagement of the body is loss of health. But attending the loss of health are other results which are equally serious and far-reaching. Without good health, people fail to accomplish their aims and ambitions in life, they miss the joy of living, they lose their ability to work and become burdens on their friends or society. The proper management of the body means health and it also means the capacity for work and for enjoyment. Not only should one seek to preserve his health from day to day, but he should so manage his body as to use his powers to the best advantage and prolong as far as possible the period during which he may be a capable and full citizen. Chapter II General View of the Body External Divisions Examined from the outside, the body presents certain parts, or divisions, familiar to all. The main, or central, portion is known as the trunk and to this are attached the head, the upper extremities, and the lower extremities. These in turn present smaller divisions which are also familiar. The upper part of the trunk is known as the thorax, or chest, and the lower part as the abdomen. The portions of the trunk to which the arms are attached are the shoulders, and those to which the legs are joined are the hips, while the central rear portion between the neck and the hips is the back, the fingers, the hand, the wrist, the forearm, the elbow and the upper arm are the main divisions of each of the upper extremities, the toes, the foot, the ankle, the lower leg, the knee, 
and the thigh are the chief divisions of each of the lower extremities. The head, which is joined to the trunk by the neck, has such interesting parts as the eyes, the ears, the nose, the jaws, the cheeks, and the mouth. The entire body is enclosed in a double covering, called the skin, which protects it in various ways. The tissues, after examining the external features of the body, we naturally inquire about its internal structures. These are not so easily investigated, and much which is of interest to advanced students must be omitted from an elementary course. We may, however, as a first step in the study, determine what kinds of materials enter into the construction of the body. For this purpose the body of some small animal should be dissected and studied. See observation at close of chapter. The different materials found by such a dissection correspond closely to the substances, called tissues, which make up the human body. The main tissues of the body, as ordinarily named, are the muscular tissue, the osseous tissue, the connective tissue, the nervous tissue, the adipose tissue, the cartilaginous tissue, and the epithelial and glandular tissue. Most of these present different varieties, making altogether some 15 different kinds of tissues that enter into the construction of the body. To general purposes of the tissues, the tissues, first of all, form the body, as a house is constructed of wood, stone, plaster, iron, and other building materials, so is the body made up of its various tissues, for this reason the tissues have been called the building materials of the body, in addition to forming the body, the tissues supply the means through which its work is carried on, they are thus the working materials of the body, in serving this purpose the tissues play an active role, all of them must perform the activities of growth and repair, and certain ones the so-called active tissues must do work which benefits the body as a whole, purposes of the different tissues, in the construction of the body and also in the work which it carries on, the different tissues are made to serve different purposes, the osseous tissue is the chief substance in the bony framework, or skeleton, while the muscular tissue produces the different movements of the body, the connective tissue, which is everywhere abundant, serves the general purpose of connecting the different parts together, cartilaginous tissue forms smooth coverings over the ends of the bones and, in addition to this, supplies the necessary stiffness in organs like the larynx and the ear. The nervous tissue controls the body and brings it into proper relations with its surroundings, while the epithelial tissue found upon the body surfaces and in the glands supplies it with protective coverings and secretes liquids. The adipose tissue fat prevents the too rapid escape of heat from the body, supplies it with nourishment in time of need, and forms soft pads for delicate organs like the eyeball. Properties of the tissues If we inquire how the tissues are able to serve such widely different purposes, we find this answer. The tissues differ from one another both in composition and in structure and, on this account, differ in their properties. Three their different properties enable them to serve different purposes in the body, somewhat as glass is adapted by its transparency, hardness, and toughness to the use made of it in windows. The special properties of the tissues adapt them to the kinds of service which they perform. Properties that adapt tissues to their work in the body are called essential properties. The most important of these essential properties are as follows. 1. Of osseous tissue, hardness, stiffness, and toughness. 2. Of muscular tissue, contractility and irritability. 3. Of nervous tissue, irritability and conductivity. 4. Of cartilaginous tissue, stiffness and elasticity. 5. Of connective tissue, toughness and pliability. 6 of epithelial tissue, ability to resist the action of external forces and power to secrete, figure 1 figure 1 hand and forearm, 
showing the grouping of muscular and connective tissues in the organ for grasping. Tissue groups. In the construction of the body the tissues are grouped together to form its various divisions or parts. A group of tissues which serves some special purpose is known as an organ. The hand, for example, is an organ for grasping figure 1. While the different organs of the body do not always contain the same tissues, and never contain them in the same proportions, they do contain such tissues as their work requires and these had a special arrangement one adapted to the work which the organs perform. In addition to forming the organs, the tissues are also grouped in such a manner as to provide supports for organs and to form cavities in which organs are placed. The various cavities of the body are of particular interest and importance. The three largest ones are the cranial cavity, containing the brain, the thoracic cavity, containing the heart and the lungs, and the abdominal cavity, containing the stomach, the liver, the intestines, and other important organs figure 2. Smaller cavities serving different purposes are also found. Figure 2 figure 2 diagram of a lengthwise section of the body to show its large cavities and the organs which they contain. Organs and systems. The work of the body is carried on by its various organs. Many, in fact the majority, of these organs serve more than one purpose. The tongue is used in talking, in masticating the food, and in swallowing. The nose serves at least three distinct purposes. The mouth, the arms, the hands, the feet, the legs, the liver, the lungs, and the stomach are also organs that serve more than one purpose. This introduces the principle of economy into the construction of the body and diminishes the number of organs that would otherwise be required. The various organs also combine with one another in carrying on the work of the body. An illustration of this is seen in the digestion of the food a process which requires the combined action of the mouth, stomach, liver, intestines, and other organs. A number of organs working together for the same purpose form a system. The chief systems of the body are the digestive system the circulatory system, the respiratory system, the muscular system, and the nervous system, the organ and its work. A most interesting question relating to the work of the organ is this, does the organ work for its own benefit or for the benefit of the body as a whole? Does the hand, for example, grasp for itself or in order that the entire body may come into possession? Only slight study is sufficient to reveal the fact that each organ performs a work which benefits the body as a whole. In other words, Just as the organ itself is a part of the body, the work which it does is a part of the necessary work which the body has to do. But in working for the general good, or for the body as a whole, each organ becomes a sharer in the benefits of the work done by every other organ. While the hand receives only a little of the nourishment contained in the food which it places in the mouth or of the heat from fuel which it places on the fire, it is aided and supported by the work of all the other organs of the body eyes, feet, brain, heart etc. The hand does not and cannot work independently of the other organs. It is one of the partners in a very close combination where, by doing a particular work, it shares in the profits of all. What is true of the hand is true of every other organ of the body. An organization, the relations which the different organs sustain to each other and to the body as a whole suggest the possibility of classifying the body as an organization. This term is broadly applied to a variety of combinations. An organization is properly defined as any group of individuals which, in working together for a common purpose, practices the division of labor. This definition will be better understood by considering a few familiar examples. A baseball team is an organization. The team is made up of individual players. These work together for the common purpose of winning games. 
they practice the division of labor in that the different players do different things one catching, another pitching, and so on. A manufacturing establishment which employs several workmen may also be an organization. The article manufactured provides the common purpose toward which all strive, and, in the assignment of different kinds of work to the individual workmen, the principle of division of labor is carried out. For the same reason a school, a railway system, an army, and a political party are organizations. An organization of a lower order of individuals than these human organizations is to be found in a hive of bees. This is made up of the individual bees, and these, in carrying on the general work of the hive, are known to practice the division of labor. Is the body an organization? If the body is an organization, it must fulfill the conditions of the definition. It must be made up of separate or individual parts. Bees must work together for the same general purpose, and, in the accomplishment of this purpose, must practice the division of labor. That the body practices the division of labor is seen in the related work of the different organs, that it is made up of minute, but individual, parts will be shown in the chapter following, that it carries on a general work which is accomplished through the combined action of its individual parts is revealed through an extended study of its various activities. The body is an organization, moreover, it is one of the most complex and, at the same time, most perfect of the organizations of which we have knowledge. Summary Viewed from the outside, the body is seen to be made up of divisions which are more or less familiar. Viewed internally, it is found to consist of different kinds of materials, called tissues. The tissues are adapted, by their properties, to different purposes both in the construction of the body and in carrying on its work. The working parts of the body are called organs and these in their work combine to form systems. The entire body, on account of the method of its construction and the character of its work, may be classed as an organization. Exercises. 1. Name and locate the chief external divisions of the body. 2. What tissues may be found by dissecting the leg of a chicken. 3. Name the most important properties and the most important uses of muscular tissue, osseous tissue, and connective tissue. 4. Define an organ. Define a system. Name examples of each. 5. Name the chief cavities of the body and the organs which they contain. 6. What tissues are present in the hand? How does each of these aid in the work of the hand? 7. Define an organization. Show that a railway system, an army, and a school are organizations. 8. What is meant by the phrase, division of labor? In what manner is the division of labor practiced in a sure watch factory? What are the advantages? 9. What are the proofs that the body is an organization? Practical work observation on the tissues. Examine with care the structures in the entire leg of a chicken, squirrel, rabbit, or other small animal used for food. Observe, first of all, the external covering, consisting of cuticle and hair, claws, scales, or feathers. According to the specimen, these are similar in structure, and they form the epidermis, which is one kind of epithelial tissue. With a sharp knife lay open the skin and observe that it is attached to the parts underneath by thin, but tough, threads and sheaths. These represent a variety of connective tissue. The reddish material which forms the greater portion of the specimen is a variety of muscular tissue, and its divisions are called muscles. With a blunt instrument, separate the muscles, by tearing apart the connective tissue binding them together, and find the glistening white strips of connective tissue tendons which attach them to the bones. Find near the central part of the leg a soft, white cord and nerve which represents one variety of nervous tissue, the bones which may now be examined, form the osseous tissue, at the ends of the bones will be found a layer of smooth, 
white material which represents one kind of cartilaginous tissue, the adipose, or fatty, tissue, which is found under the skin and between the other tissues, is easily recognized. Relation of the tissues to the organs. Observe in the specimen just studied the relation of the different tissues to the organ as a whole regarding the leg as an organ, i.e. show how each of the tissues aids in the work which the organ accomplishes. Show in particular how the muscles supply the foot with motion, by tracing out the tendons that connect them with the toes, pull on the different tendons, noting the effect upon the different parts of the foot. Chapter III The Body Organization What is the nature of the body organization? What are the individual parts, or units, that make it up? What general work do these carry on and upon what basis do they practice the division of labor? The answers to these questions will suggest the main problems in the study of the body. Figure 3 Figure 3 Diagram Showing the Relation of the Cells and the Intercellular Material C-Cells I Intercellular Material Complex Nature of the Tissues To the unaided eye the tissues had the appearance of simple structures. The microscope, however, shows just the reverse to be true. When any one of the tissues is suitably prepared and carefully examined with this instrument, at least two classes of materials can be made out. One of these consists of minute particles, called cells. The other is a substance lying between the cells, known as the intercellular material figure 3. The cells and the intercellular material, though varying in their relative proportions, are present in all the tissues. The body is cell group. The biologist has found that the bodies of all living things, plants as well as animals, consist either of single cells or of groups of cells. The single cells live independently of one another, but the cells that form groups are attached to, and are more or less dependent upon one another. In the first condition are found the very lowest forms of life. In the second, life reaches its greatest development. The body of man, which represents the highest type of life, is recognized as a group of cells. In this group each cell is usually separate and distinct from the others, but is attached to them, and is held in place by the intercellular material, protoplasm, the cell substance. The cell is properly regarded as an organized bit of a peculiar material, called protoplasm. This is a semi-liquid and somewhat granular substance which resembles in appearance the white of a raw egg. Its true nature and composition are unknown, because any attempt to analyze it kills it. And dead protoplasm is essentially different from living protoplasm. It is known, however, to be a highly complex substance and to undergo chemical change readily. It appears to be the only kind of matter with which life is ever associated. And for this reason protoplasm is called the physical basis of life. Its organization into separate bits, or cells, is necessary to the life activities that take place within it. Structure of the cell. Though all portions of the cell are formed from the protoplasm, this essential substance differs both in structure and in function at different places in the cell. For this reason the cell is looked upon as a complex body having several distinct parts, that or near the center is a clear, rounded body, called the nucleus. This plays some part in the nourishment of the cell and also in the formation of new cells. If it be absent, as is sometimes the case, the cell is short-lived and unable to reproduce itself. The variety of protoplasm contained in the nucleus is called the nucleoplasm. Figure 4 Figure 4 Diagram of a typical cell after Wilson. 1. Main body. 2. Nucleus. 3. Attraction sphere. 4. Food particles and waste. 5. Cell wall. 6. Masses of active material found in certain cells, called plastids, surrounding the nucleus is the main body of the cell, sometimes referred to as the protoplasm, 
since the protoplasm forms all parts of the cell, this substance is more properly called the cytoplasm, or cell plasm, surrounding and including the cytoplasm, in many cells, is a thin outer layer, or membrane, which affords more or less protection to the contents of the cell, this is usually referred to as the cell wall, a fourth part of the cell is also described, being called the attraction sphere, this is a small body lying near the nucleus and cooperating with that body in the formation of new cells, food particles, wastes, and other substances may also be present in the cytoplasm, the parts of a typical cell are shown in figure 4, importance of the cells, the cells must be regarded as the living, working parts of the body, they are the active agents in all of the tissues, enabling them to serve their various purposes, working through the tissues, they build up the body and carry on its different activities, they are recognized on this account as the units of structure and of function, and are the individuals in the body organization, among the most important and interesting of the activities of the cells are those by which they build up the body, or cause it to grow, how the cells enable the body to grow, every cell is able to take new material into itself and to add this to the protoplasm, this tends to increase the amount of the protoplasm, thereby causing the cells to increase in size, a general increase in the size of the cells has the effect of increasing the size of the entire body, and this is one way by which they cause it to grow, their island however, a fixed limit, varying with different cells, to the size which they attain, and this is quite low, the largest cells are scarcely visible to the naked eye, any marked increase in the size of the body must, therefore, be brought about by other means, such a means is found in the formation of new cells, or cell reproduction, the new cells are always formed by and from the old cells, the essential process being known,